0: welcome to joiners the podcast with tim and danny where each week we chug from the fountain of knowledge that is the hospitality industry and this week we are a little bit full yes we uh, actually just finished a very large meal from a little known spot up in niles illinois called siam's house it's a very authentic tie very good tie and uh, we would not have known
1: about it if not for this week's guest ronnie kaplan Yeah. Ronnie is the unsung hero of Chicago's culinary landscape. He has done more to champion independent mom and pop spots than perhaps any other entity. Um, it was really a pleasure to get to talk to him, you know, by day he works running his family's company called greenwood associates and they are one of the biggest suppliers of concentrates purees and essential oils so he's, he's industry adjacent
0: but his true passion is dining and cooking and writing about those experiences
1: yeah and you know i had i didn't i've known ronnie for a long time but i didn't know how uh impactful anthony bourdain's book kitchen confidential was to him and how it sort of gave him permission to enjoy uh food kind of root from the sidelines yeah without having to be like entrenched yeah so it was really cool hearing from ronnie hearing his story yeah fantastic guest we had a great time and
0: we got a lot of good tips on restaurants to check out too yeah so without further delay here's our conversation with ronnie suburban
2: Thanks for, for inviting me to crash the, the two-top today. I appreciate it. Yeah, I love it. You know, I, um, I uh, kind of backed into this thing because I was uh, as a family business that I started uh, just working summers and then, uh, you yeah, know, I was just kind of pitching in. We were a small company. We didn't even have our own facility. We just had like a, a co-packer. We weren't really doing any of our own anything, receiving, shipping, anything, manufacturing. It was all farmed out. Hmm. And, um, so I was like working summers, you know, at the co-packer. Yeah. Like my dad had this arrangement. He was buddies. This is
1: pre Tulane or post? Oh no, this is
2: high school. I mean, this was like, yeah, I was like,
1: you got a taste of the,
2: I was so young that I couldn't even drive yet. (laughs) And my dad, because he was so intent on teaching me good work ethic would have my grandfather come pick me up at my house and drive me down there. And it, was like, it wasn't <laughs> even light out yet I mean the summer it wasn't light out yet so it was like I don't know 4 or 5 in the morning and he had this orange Cutlass Supreme and he would pick me up and uh, the whole way down in traffic all the way so like we were going to like 43rd and western from the northern suburbs and it wow. took forever and he'd Uh, oh is that like the
1: stockyards yeah
2: pretty much wait
1: that's where it was based that's where the co-packer was yeah they had a
2: facility there and um i didn't know that my grandpa would go like 40 in the left lane he'd have to be smoking with like his window open about you know like a quarter of an inch (laughs) uh, listening to wally phillips i don't know you guys if you grew up here but like wally phillips was like this institution on wgn radio he was like people that Loved him and listened to him every morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just terrible, just horrible old people stuff. So, stuff that people who are my age now probably enjoyed back in the 70s. And so we go, and then I'd, I'd, you know, he'd take me down there and I'd pack samples and make boxes and do whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how I learned the business. And I was, you know, on my way to greener pastures and, and I kind of left the nest a little bit um but uh and got to work in the arts and i was doing some stuff on some film projects or whatever it was i went to film school it was, it was it was fun uh but um oh yeah my dad and i was it was free i thought <laughs> but then <laughs> my, my dad came to me like in the early 90s it was probably like 93 i was working on a movie in town and um He's like, look, you can do whatever you want to do. I mean, I don't need you to come back and do this, but I don't want to do it too much longer. So if you don't want, if you're not the guy, then I need to find somebody to hire somebody to do it. So I went back to my boss at this film I was working on and I, I wasn't trying to leverage them. I just said, all I want is just promise me I can work till the end of the film. Cause I was like kind of a week to week accountant uh, type employee. And he's like, you know, I love you. You've done great work here, but I can't do anything like that. So I said, well, then I guess I better go because I, you know, I can't be without work. So I went back to work for my father's company and that was probably a September, October of 93. And
1: what name did it carry then?
2: Oh, same, same okay. as today, Greenwood. Yeah. Okay. So, and then, uh, and then he, you know, up and died, uh, not too long after that. So but and he died uh, like a year and a half later. Do you think he oh, wow. had a feeling? Like... No, he was he was like a uh, he was first of all he died on his fifty eighth birthday, yeah. so he was young and he, said he like ran all the time. Yeah, he was a bike rider. He was a or, fitness nut. He rode his bike, bike like a hundred miles a week. So it was. We never did an autopsy, so I guess we'll never really know. He had had his hips replaced. They thinking maybe it was a blood clot at some point, but he hmm. was on a leisurely bike ride with one of his buddies, and he dropped a you know he dropped off his bike uh, up in lake forest on the green bay trail uh Mm. had a heart attack fell off his bike and pretty much died on the spot
1: wow so uh yeah so So notes everything is on your shoulders all of a sudden yeah
2: not not entirely my stepbrother my stepmom was you know somebody who kind of been doing a little bit of the bookkeeping for the business my stepbrother you know god love him he's twice as smart as I am, but I think at the time he was pretty much just majoring in bongs at some art college, <laughs> and, um, but the three of us cobbled together and kind of just started running the business and figuring out what to do, and, and, uh you know, and here Had I your am. stepbrother yeah.
0: done any interning? Was he at least familiar with the business? Or he was and he I, coming in fresh?
2: In summers long after my grandfather was no longer a part of it, when I actually had a driver's license, he and I would go down. Again, we were always relegated to working at the co-packer's facility. Uh-huh. So we, he knew how to pack samples. We knew... We didn't know anything about business. We just knew how to go down, and do certain tasks in our particular company. Yeah. Did you so, have the
1: same orange Cutlass Supreme? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sorry. Did you care Did you inherit that same orange Cutlass? Supreme? No,
2: I mean, no, I did not. Uh, I did. <laughs> there was one year where my dad used to ship my grandparents out to either California or Florida for the winter, and um, so there were a couple of times, a couple of winters, where I got to drive that. That was my car, the orange Cutlass Supreme. And man, I. Um, oh, I was not a, you know, a skilled driver at that point my, my drove the orange right off <laughs> Oh, thing. yeah, I just, you know, I, like the king of the one-car accident, so, um...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hate to go back, but I'm curious what the movie you were working on was.
2: Uh, it was a, a stellar Hollywood production called Baby's Day Out.
0: Mm. Sure, I remember Baby's Day Out. Yeah,
2: it was a, a big, big movie with, uh, Joe Mantegna and Lara Flynn Boyle and Joe joy Pan, Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano, and, yeah. uh... Sir John Gielgud and Cynthia Nixon. Um, oh. It was, a, it was a quite an all-star is it, cast. Is that was shot in Chicago? Yeah, this oh. was back in the day when there was a big... It was a John Hughes-produced produ, yeah. movie, and the director was Patrick Reed Johnson, who I think it only... Not his only other work, but his claim to fame at that point was he had directed Spaced Invaders. Mm. Um, and there were these big... There used to be racket clubs at the corner of Chewy and McCormick, and they converted them into sound stages for temporarily they were, I think now it's all shopping and, and, and strip malls, but, hmm. and so they, they did most, they did a lot of the stuff on location around town, uh, but they, that was kind of home base was it, hmm. it was at, the uh, Tui and McCormick. Huh. And, um, and I lived in Evanston at the time and I'd drive over there and do my little job and, uh. That yeah, was interesting it was it was a good i mean i you know i I worked in a lot of industry stuff up until that point. that was really the last thing I ever did though um and um it was uh, not a movie that that resonated over the years, which i mean i I still occasionally see it come on cable or whatever and well yeah but, in
0: ninety three we were seven yeah, like that's I remember right. that was like we were the demographic for that one
2: <laughs> yeah it was uh it's a crazy movie but you know it was funny to be on set and meet certain people who were very accomplished yeah. and uh you know i'm just some guy making 500 a week and i was in the accounting department so i know for a fact that i had the worst deal <laughs> yeah. on the movie i mean it was you know i thought just yeah. even asking for, for a full-time rat. job was more than they were going to give me so um but so it know. wasn't
0: a union gig then oh, no ever... for not
2: for me i'm sure yeah. at some, on some level it was uh but i did you know one of the tasks that i did that was a lot of fun being in that role was that uh, uh, there were a lot of people who were working what they call uh, on distant location. And so these people, in addition to their pay, were also, and this is before ATMs or before they were really you know, a big thing, and the Internet certainly was not a banking conduit, uh, these people would get cash. I mean, every week, in addition to their paycheck, uh, we would go to wherever the, the, the production was shooting on Fridays with... Uh, all sorts of cash stuffed into probably about $40,000 worth of cash stuffed into brown envelopes. And we'd be giving each of the people on the cast and crew their cash. They were so happy to see us. We were the most popular people on the film. So that was one really funny thing that we did that I remember. And I, of course... uh, one of my tasks at one day was to take everybody's deal and file them alphabetically in the filing cabinet in the accounting trailer. So that was a quite an eye opener to see <laughs> the money people were making, out oh, yeah. and the crazy deals, flying their families in every weekend, and staying at the Four Seasons, and of course everybody had a driver. You know, it was it was crazy. And this is '93, so I don't, I'm not even sure things were out of control yet, yeah. with the way they probably are now.
0: Who was the top billing actor on the film?
2: Uh, Joe Montana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, so yeah, he and Lara Flynn Boyle and, uh, and Joe Pants, Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano were, were the big three. Hmm. And he was such a sweetheart. He really was one of those guys, Joey Pants. I'd never really met any of them, but I was. he would often come into the accounting trailer. He knew people who worked in the accounting department from uh, other productions. And he had, had friendships with them, and they were happy to see him. And he would, he would come by just to say hello. He That's was cool. a completely cool, down-to-earth guy, a really fun guy, great sense of humor.
1: Nice. So sw- switching gears a little bit here, uh, from the, the film side of Ronnie's life, how, at what point was a, you know, a fondness for, you know, the culinary world, uh, kind of instilled within you?
2: Well, that, I guess it's early, my father, before his he, he had always been in the food industry, and as a kid, had worked in a Jewish deli on the South Side. When before all the Jews in Chicago migrated to the northern suburbs, they were all on the South Shore, and um, in Hyde Park. And so my dad, as a kid, worked in a deli, and and so he was always around food, and and uh, and that kind of just rubbed off on me, I guess. And then I uh, I went. To, for college, I started uh, at Tulane. So you're plopped down in, at 18 years old in New Orleans. It's a really good place to suddenly be immersed in the world of food and mm-hmm. so different than anything I'd ever been around in my life till then. So it really had a profound influence on me. It, it, you know, not that I'm an expert on Creole or Cajun cuisine, but that it just opened my eyes to the possibilities of what was out there. Yeah. You know?
1: And then, so like, you know, you're back in Chicago after school. And you, you know, like, how quickly are you, like, on e-gullet and doing all these things? You know, how does that, how does that happen?
2: Well, I think probably the same path that other people took. I read, you know, I was always a a pretty avid reader and, and into food and culinary arts. And I read Tony Bourdain's piece in The New Yorker. And then I read of Confidential, and I, as a guy who did a lot of cooking and enjoyed being, you know, home cook and uh, entertaining, uh, reading that book was such a, a liber- liberating thing for me because it, there was so much in it that made me realize that my instincts to not go into the profession were completely right on. Everything that I worried about would be like, don't do this, just because you know how to cook doesn't mean you know how to run a restaurant, all these things, little isms that he came up with, they're just rules. that it just profoundly affected me. I just felt like such a sense of relief that I can just do what I'm doing here and enjoy it, and I don't have to take it any further, to, to have it be something really enjoyable for myself. And um, I guess everything was kind of um, catalyzed by meeting Tony really early in his career, uh, Red Kitchen Confidential, and then he was in the board. He was coming to town. There was like a fan group, on, it was at the time it was a Yahoo group, Yahoo fan group, whatever. And we a few people who like board were there posting. This is pre message board and certainly pre social media. I mean, this is probably two thousand two. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tony had had some fiction that, that you know never really took off the same way as nonfiction did, but he came to the borders in Oakbrook and um, to do a reading. And to sign books. And there were probably 10 people there. I mean, it was he was still a relatively unknown guy. And so I, but I knew he had interacted a little with us on the fan group. And I, you know, and so uh, I I waited, kind of hang, hung back to the end. And I had the book and I asked him to sign it for me. He said, what's your name? I said, Ronnie. And he gets up out of his chair and said, Ronnie Suburban? I'm like, yeah. He's like, dude, it is amazing to meet you. And he hugged me. And he's like, this is so cool of you to come. And whatever. He was just so
1: gracious. And um, just because of what you had written on. Yeah, the I guess he boards. knew I was
2: a real fan. And he wasn't really a big star at that point. Obviously, he wasn't really anything at wow. that point other than a, a writer and a, a cook. You know. But your
1: writing must have affected him enough for him to remember. It. I
2: think he at that time the world was pretty small. And so yeah, I think he was pretty much knew that we were fans. I mean, that's all it really was that we were fans. And uh, but. Again, Again, that was just such a liberating thing to read his book. It really had a profound... Kitchen Confidential really had a profound influence on my life, and so I wanted to let him know that in person. And I had done that online, but I guess we really connected the dots when we met that day. And then on subsequent visits when he came to town, we would occasionally get together. I mean, not really outside in any sort of special way, but just, you know, I'd go to the readings or the signings or whatever, and then afterwards we'd go out and grab drinks or whatever. And I think there was one night where... We got pretty pretty crazy, uh, and um, and I was extremely drunk. I remember going into the bathroom to leave my partners at work a voicemail that I wasn't going to be in the next day. <laughs> and um, and Tony and I, you know it was just such a fun thing. And he's like, "Dude, you're the best." And he grabbed my head and he kissed me on the forehead, and he's like, "You're the best man." <laughs> and it was just it was a fun moment, and it was something I'll remember for for quite some time.
1: Where was this? Where were you drinking?
2: Uh... This was at oh god, what's the name of the? I,
0: I know Old Town Poorhouse is one of his we, spots. We
2: went there. We went to Pippin's. This was a place that was a little divier, and it was west. And I, I, you know, the name escapes me right now. It's like so obvious, but I'm just having a, you know, just a brain lapse. But um, it wasn't Club, Club Lago, but uh, it's like a a bar that was just just kind of divy and yeah. and wonderful, and we had a great time. But yeah, we went to Old Town. Ale House because it was open late and we went to pippins which it was because it was around the corner from a place that he had uh you know that he had done a, a signing so um but yeah we had a, i think one of my partners still has that voicemail saved on the computer <laughs> um but yeah i was starstruck and and he just was such a great guy and uh a teacher and a, an interesting person and i just feel you know <sighs> Uh, yeah, just so devastated about what what you know how he met his end and what happened it was just such a terrible one. But that, so those things, uh, you know, certainly uh, had a big influence on me at a time when I was you know kind of looking for an outlet.
1: Yeah, um, did he, you know, maybe elevate your food criticism, like, or your just your passion in food in general?
2: I think he just made it made me feel like it was just safe to express an opinion. Yeah, and not worry so much about it. Uh, you know, I could never hope to be the writer that any professional writer ever is. Uh, you know, that's just not my gig, but I do like writing. I majored in writing in college. Um, and, uh, so it's been, it's always been an outlet for me, but I think he just made me feel like, Hey, it's, it's safe to do this. You know, not everybody's going to love it and everybody's going to hate it. So just do it, man, do it for yourself mm-hmm. and see where it lands. So, yeah.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about like the Eagle at community and kind of like that role?
2: Yeah, so the Eagle, it was like the big thing at the time. And, and people like Bourdain and, am I allowed to even say his name, Mario Batali, uh, and other big, big names in the food industry were posting there. I mean, it was just such a nexus. Uh, and a lot of professional people were writing there and posting there. And, uh, and it was out of New York. And uh, I just kind of got involved there posting. And uh, I had a, my 40th birthday. I, my wife arranged for me to go a very special dinner, this place I actually do remember, Naha, um, and we went, and it really inspired me to write something, and I wrote it, and I just dipped my toe in the water at Eagle, and I never really posted much there, but I posted it, and I got a lot of very... Positive feedback about the piece. And that just gave me some confidence. So, so, that was
1: the first piece that you wrote was about Naha? I think so. Or in depth piece.
2: Something that somebody other than, like, my, you know, the Julie, my wife, actually read. Yeah. Um, or that somebody in my, you know, creative writing 203 course or whatever, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, wrote, uh, read. But um, so, but Eagle was a, was a really cool thing. It was run by one person who was a huge mentor to me, a guy, Stephen Shaw, whose name is. Online name was Fat Guy, who was a very brilliant guy and a former attorney who kind of washed up on the law side and decided he was going to start this thing. He had stodged in some restaurants. He kind of really knew New York, the New York scene, the world scene, fine dining. He and a guy named Jason Perlow, they kind of you know, and a few other people started this site, but they were really the creative forces behind it. And it was very New York centric, but there was a heartland for him. Of course, it's the coast. You know, there's New York, there's New Jersey. It's very specific on the coast, and then everything in between it's just the heartland i mean i think the heartland included you know maryland and mississippi and i mean so yeah but it was everything that wasn't coastal and when we got there was a big enough group of co- local people here in chicago who really got to got together in person and so every once in a while and so those people became became friends with them i learned a lot from them i learned a lot from Stephen, and i learned a lot from a couple other dudes who and, and women and who uh who live locally. We occasionally get together and learn a lot about cooking, a lot about shopping, a lot about just about life, but through food, you know, and through cooking together and eating together and going out together. It was, it was really valuable for me. It was changed me a lot.
1: And where does LTH come into this timeline, the chronology?
2: So LTH, which is stands for Little Three Happiness, which is a local Chicago-based culinary chat site, which is started by a group of people, most notably Gary Wiviet, GWIV, uh, that, I think that started in around 2000, I, which I should know this better since I now own the website, <laughs> um, but I certainly backed into that. Um, but it started in about 2004. It was a bunch of people who had been posting on Chowhound. There's another culinary okay, site, but that's, but that's a site that I never really spent any time at at all. Okay. Um, but they were upset because of the way they were being treated at Chowhound. They didn't like there were just policies there that prevented them from doing what they wanted to do. The in-person gatherings were more restricted. I mean, it was just, it was like, Hey, this is our space, follow our rules. And a bunch of people said, no, we're just going to start our own thing. And so they started LTH. And, um, and so I was just always just reading along. And then when Eagle probably I don't know what year maybe 2006 2007 I don't know at some point Eagle became changed their model and became like a non-for-profit and then they got very restrictive and at that point I thought okay I'm cuz I had, I was on the staff at Eagle and I was a host I was a manager and uh, but I just thought this is really isn't for me anymore uh, and this, I just didn't love well, it didn't feel like a good fit I was happy for, to see them do what they wanted to do um, hard to monetize those sites and so they became a not for profit, which made sense. A couple people who started it get a salary for running it. But you know, you try to monetize something on the backs of people who provided free content for you know, you you, you can do the math, you know. Yeah, back goes.
0: then it was impossible. Yeah. Now you get sponsorships.
2: Right. But yeah, to think you're wait, you're gonna now you're gonna make money on because of the content I provided. I mean, it just yeah. so so we go went with that model. And that that's when I started getting a little bit more involved in LTH and you know, again i just started writing and being pretty proliferate there and uh dusted off some of my you know i ended, yes i in the film industry I did a lot of jobs the last one being accounting but what brought me there was i was a creative person and i dusted off some of my photography skills and started taking the camera around and learning realizing hey you know food is easy to shoot it doesn't move you know mm-hmm. it doesn't, doesn't have a headache i mean it's it's like a super simple thing to shoot well and uh, relatively speaking, not that I'm a great photographer, but it's certainly easier than shooting kids or motion or anything like that. It's it's not nearly as challenging. So I started posting some pictures and writing about food, and, and just kind of eventually somebody there, Gary, I think, uh, was running the show. He wanted me to be a moderator, and, and then he ran into some issues years later, and me and a couple other guys just decided, you know, we just decided to buy it, to prevent it from going out of business, to prevent you know other people from possibly taking it over and just turn, shutting it down
1: but it's still like a major culinary beacon yeah i think people still read it and they come to it
2: the community isn't quite what it was i mean it's a in a sense message forums are a dying platform um and you've also got me and four or five of the moderators none of whom have any technical ability at all which makes it hard to keep up but you know there wasn't social media there wasn't twitter and facebook and snapchat and instagram those things are just way more what people want so it's this is long form yeah,
1: different yeah long form stuff, stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, and more it, in depth and more thoughtful i would say there's a
2: place for it and i think there's some value certainly some value but it isn't for everyone some people just want it much more instant and much quicker and i and i get that um but that's never been what lth has been about
1: Joiner's podcast is brought to you by Party Can. Party Can is a premium batched, large format, full flavored cocktail that uses high end liquor, real juice, real ingredients. It's all natural, gluten free. It's 12 drinks in a single can. And guess what? That can actually floats. You can take it to the beach, the pool, on the boat, camping, hiking, to the game, everywhere you go. It is recyclable and reusable. It's a party in a can, and everyone's invited. Party Can is available at multiple retailers around Chicago, around the country, and you can always go to drinkpartycan.com to find a local store or have one shipped to you or a friend. And now, back to our interview.
0: So what was the type of content at that time? What what places were you reviewing? What I guess what made up the...
2: Well, you know, LTH was a pretty wide net. And so everything from shopping and cooking to gardening to, of course, the food. But the food, the rest, by food, I mean the restaurant world. Uh, but the restaurant world was more focused on street eats and, and what Chowhound had been, about grub, you know. And um, and I guess I brought a little bit different of an aesthetic. I was i was not, a, by any means, a huge... Uh, follower of fine dining or a participant, but it, I, again, I backed into it.
1: But you've documented like the whole opening of Illinia, right?
2: That's true. But that's, and, that, and I learned
1: a lot and I loved it. And I've been to Illinia many times. And Can I, you kind of tell that story, like how that came to happen? Well,
2: that was just a simply, it was a really a simple thing. The Eagle at Grant was one of the people who, Grant Ackett's, chef and owner, co-owner of Illini, uh was at, you know, who was formerly a trio in Evanston. He was, they were opening Alinea and they wanted, they were, he was very tech savvy and he wanted to document the opening of the restaurant online. It's like, we're going to have a food lab. We want to, we want somebody to be there to kind of do it, you know, to show what we're doing and to work on it and kind of document it. And, um, and so he approached Eagle and Eagle just didn't have anybody else in Chicago that was willing to do it. I mean, it wasn't like, oh dude, we're calling you up. We love your stuff. It was like. All right, this guy. That's all we got. <laughs> Give him the ball Too Let's humble. see what happens. You know. No, but you did an
0: incredible job. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. What was? I attribute at least half of their success to the <laughs> documentation early <laughs> <Yeah>. on.
2: <laughs> it was good. I worked with my friend Anthony Marty, who's still in town. Who was? It was an eagle guy who went by the name of Yellow Truffle, and he was a great photographer. I learned a lot about. You know, I joke about how easy food photography is. Well, part of that's because he taught me yeah. well. Uh, he did a lot of photography. I did a lot of the interviewing and question answering, you know.
1: How was uh, the interaction with their team? Like,
2: oh, it was great. It was uh, so much fun. At, at the food lab actually started at Nick Kokonis' house in, Ken- in Kenilworth. Uh, and then they quickly got a place in Ravenswood. And it was, uh, you know, um, it was really interesting. Uh but the team was great. It was Grant. At the time, it was Grant and Curtis Duffy and John Peters. And those were the guys. And I remember being there watching these guys peel grapes because the peanut butter and jelly course on the very first Alinea menu involves peeled grapes because the skin was going to be too bitter. It was going to screw up the mouthfeel. I mean, these guys thought about every detail. It was, it was just spectacular. <laughs> yeah. So
1: um, Were so they th- critical of like the angles uh, for, the, for the photographs and stuff like that? Not,
2: not no they really there was one picture I think they didn't it's an interesting story and I really hope I'm not talking out of school here but I I always thought that it spoke to a certain amount of charm at some point Grant had a cut and had a put a band-aid on his finger and it was well, I think again I think pretty sure you know again I don't I'm not sure of exactly if I remember the details correctly but I'm pretty sure this was because we were working at Nick's house uh, put a band-aid on. It happened to be a, a kid band-aid, like with a Winnie the Pooh or something like that on it. And they nixed that. They're like, man, if you cannot post that because it's just, just going to uh, maybe steer people in not taking grants seriously enough. And I said, okay, I won't. And and I, and so we didn't, but I thought, well, really, I thought it was really charming. It yeah. was just his hand. But I think that already at that point, they were very very much uh, trying to make sure they were in control of...
1: The image, uh, branding.
2: Exactly. And I, who mm. could blame them? look yeah I mean, it's interesting you, you look at where they've gone you can hardly bring yeah. them up any of the choices they've made yeah incredible success.
1: Was, i think well, the detail-oriented nature of the crew is uh pretty well represented by that story
2: yeah it's amazing and we all know you know we all know but a lot you know curtis duffy he's had quite a, a path to you know to success also and uh and last time I saw John Peters, I mean, who was a, just an incredible guy and a super talented chef, he was running. And this is, year being I mean, this is before the, you know, this is in the before times, way before the before times <laughs> even were a thing. I think he was running uh, uh, mini cheval, is it small cheval? Small cheval. The one in Milwaukee. I went in there with my brother. My son, one of the, some somebody who's younger than me, uh, <laughs> somebody that large demographic, and uh, and John was there, and he was really cool to us, and uh, but you know he's the kind of guy that you would may not be on the front line, but the kind of guy that if you're opening a place and you want somebody who really knows what they're doing to help you get to the finish line, he's the guy. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 a badass.
0: Cool. Yeah. Early on, how was uh, how was Alinia pitched you? Because it was. G- groundbreaking. I feel like there was a lot of anticipation with Grant coming out of Trio. How what was kind of the concept and maybe how has how has Alinea evolved and have they stayed true to that original?
2: Well, I think that you know, at least look, it's been a while since I've been to Alinea. I have to say I'm a lapsed fine diner. Um, <laughs> but uh initially it just seemed like they were so on point. They they were doing exactly what they set out to do you know, changing the menu up, challenging themselves, uh, feeding, you know, feeding on one level, feeding people, but also entertaining them, delighting them, uh, you know, just mystifying people. And the whimsy was there, and the skill was there, and the interactivity was there. It was, it was you know, it was groundbreaking. And they did such a great job with it. Um, and I'm sure it's still the same. I have not been in years, so... Um, I can't speak to how it's been over the last several years, but I know they because they they changed the configuration, they moved, they've you know different type of situation. What I read I read recently about how everybody on one floor is getting all their courses at the exact same time, and uh, so that reminded me of mugarits in in yeah, you know Spain. in uh, in Spain, and uh, I thought, well, that's cool, that's cool, they're doing that. In fact. Again, I talk about this like I have this body of knowledge about fine dining because I've been to like six restaurants. But, <laughs> but, so but, right. really reminded me a lot of Linea when I was there. And I, again, that was eight, nine years ago. But I thought, wow, this is, well, you know, not quite as good as a at least on the culinary side. But the, the feel here is very similar. Yeah, uh, of all the places we ate in Spain, that was certainly the, came the closest to what I thought was the Alinea ethos.
1: And had you been to Trio before Alinea?
2: Yeah, I had been to Trio um, a few times. Again, because you know I had been there over the years even before Grant. I mean, even when it was Rick Tremonton and Gil Gand. And, and uh, uh, so yes, I had been there. But but I went there. Early on, as an invited guest, uh, because they knew they were Nick and Grant knew they were opening a line, and they wanted me to come. That was basically the runway, so mm-hmm. come here. I came to a trio right before he left there, and yeah, had a really really amazing meal there and and of course was again recognized by a staff member and it just, you know, made my ankles tingle. I was like, how do these people know who I am? But good 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 restaurant and bar people, hospitality people, they do their homework. They know who mm-hmm. people are. They know they do everything they can to find who's coming in because it gives them an edge. Yeah. You know, I I shouldn't have taken it so personally cuz I, I could have been anybody, you know. Um but but I, to their credit, that's they run their business, they're, they don't, they don't they leave no stone unturned and it really paid off for them, I think.
1: Yeah, so Back to kind of the LTH stuff. LTH is well known for being a champion for kind of the culinary underdogs or the people in the scene who are potentially going a little bit unsung. What are like the kind of the greatest examples of places that you feel like LTH has contributed to the the world at large? I
2: think, you know, off the top of my head, one of the big ones is... Uh... Is a Roy Thai up, you know, oh, yeah. on on Damon, uh, and it's right under the brown line at Damon and, and uh, Wilson. Basically, it's just an incredible Thai place that I think just never really got it to do. I think LTH kind of helped that place quite a bit. And, and nearby, in the same cuisine, uh, Rainbow Thai, which is on Lawrence, just uh, excuse me, on Western, just north of Florence. I think also did a really got benefited very well but they expanded because of lth um and uh, i I think they might be hurting now again with covid everything you know all the cards get thrown up in the air but for they actually went from a carry up pretty much a one table carry out only place to building a dining room and and uh, that was i think it was all on the you know on the impetus of the you know the momentum that lp lth created for it
1: yeah i mean even to some degree there are uh, there are rumors that certain reviews get written about places because lth writes about them first.
2: Well, I think that's less true these days than it than it used to be, but I think a lot of people <clears throat> and and publications probably did mine lth. Uh, you know, I not not to make any accusations because I think that's just the way the world is. I mean, people have their ear to the ground. but, But I remember often seeing things in Chicago Magazine that would be there way earlier than I thought they'd be. And I figured that was because they were reading LTH. But at the time, LTH had some really great writers, some really active journalists were, I'm sure, reading it. And I and it just, the pieces fit together well. And when the beneficiaries, the restaurants, you know, these mom-and-pop places that are going to be struggling otherwise, you know, who could argue with it? Who's going to get in the way of that? I mean, yeah. I'm sure some people would. But, you know, you have to remember what the point of this is, is to love the food and to share it. And, you know, I went, so... I'll just, this is a very quick digression. A friend of mine who's uh, an expert on Thai food, and I, I do love Thai food, and I know very little about it. I've never been to Thailand. but I, It's I, my favorite. Okay, I love Thai. And there was a great Thai restaurant on Argyle Street. And this guy took me there three times we went, I think, with the only condition, and he would go. He knew Thai. He would read the menu. he talked to the owners. He'd set up these incredible dinners or lunches we went there and the only condition being that I wasn't allowed to write about it hmm. he's like I want to write about it first I'm not ready I'm not ready and then before he ever wrote about it it closed oh, <laughs> no. and it was uh, it was just too bad because I think it was a brilliant place and but it just never now would, it, would that those I've posts have that. saved it who knows uh, well, but possibly it's, it, it's just an example of you can be a little overly proprietary and you're missing the point I mean yeah. at some point if you can't help these people by sharing what they do immediately with people with like-minded people i don't really get what the point is
0: yeah I know, now like, i want to sure. know your other Thai spots in the city tech that, quick yeah yeah and uh atk andy's well, kitchen
2: yeah and uh and i know andy left tech quick and i think that both places are still pretty good and uh I do love rainbow and i love uh roy and and, you know, a sleeper that I also learned about from LTH, where I just had lunch today, is up in Niles. It's called Siam's House, and it's an interesting little spot. It's not top tier. Well, it it, it depends. I mean, again, I'm no expert. It's very good. I know a lot of people who are, work, at, at least in the day, who are Thai, who work at the Thai consulate or whatever. This is like their favorite place. Hmm. If you know how to order, you probably can do really well. I mean, I always enjoy
1: the food there. Is there a threat uh, on LTH about it?
2: Yeah, for sure. What's um, it called again? Siam's house. And it's like 7700 North Milwaukee Avenue.
1: Cool. And um, Field trip. Yeah, it's yeah. a good
2: spot. They used to have a lunch buffet that was just so... Uninteresting, but hmm. people who worked in the neighborhood I'm sure liked it. It was a six-item buffet; it never changed. But with COVID now here, you know, uh, there's no more lunch buffet. You have to order off the menu, and yeah. I think that's a that's great.
1: It's a benefit, maybe.
2: But today, when I was there on my way to the men's room, I happened to see the the buffet just sitting there, empty, forlorn. You know, all <laughs> shoved in the back hallway. Like, <laughs> yeah, no buffet, no more buffet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean,
0: Arroyo is... Too good. Last time I was at Arroyo, uh, I was talking to the owner. They were opening a breakfast spot across the street. Did that open up?
2: I don't. I don't know if it has yet. You no, know, I know somebody went there for a preview. So I don't really know the status. Although I was there pretty recently.
0: That's T, right?
2: Yeah, T. He's a good guy. He's done a lot for LTH. Uh, we had. A, we. It was probably ended up being too small a venue, but we had one of our holiday parties there, and that was crazy. But he.
1: Yeah, was, we've had many a meal there.
2: Yeah, it's a good spot. And, um, he's very accommodating and his mom runs the kitchen and she is unbelievable. And she's got some protégés who are pretty darn good too. How old is she? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure she's probably like my age, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but she's not like, you know, uh, she's just always just smiling and working and hanging out in the kitchen and, and, uh, hmm. always coming out to see how the food, you know, ask if you like it, which is great. But last time I was there, um... It's probably a couple months ago already. Uh, I think it was in the spring. Um, I'd never seen it. The restaurant itself was not really busy, but I'd never seen the place more staffed up. They clearly had found. Hmm. Their niche with uh, with carryout. Uh, there were never fewer than three carryout orders, like on the host stand, ready for somebody to pick up. There were Mama and two other people in the kitchen. One person uh, expediting carryout orders, another a busser, and then tea. There was six people there working in this little, you know, ten-seat, you know, ten-table restaurant. Hmm. So they clearly, at least, at least it was a Friday night. So take it for what it's worth. It's going to be busy anyway. They seem to have really tapped into something there. That's cool. But that's always been my favorite, but again, it's just a matter of personal preference. you know are they are they the best? I'm sure probably people would argue about it like 10,000 guys on you know with the comic book guys on The Simpsons they would argue <laughs> about this restaurant, but yeah. you know it's at some point. It's, it's water under the bridge.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Geneva. Danny, what is Geneva? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. Geneva is a European spirit with a wide range of flavors and lots of personality. It always uses malt spirit and juniper and other botanicals, so some would place it somewhere between gin and whiskey. It can be floral and bright like gin or round and malty like whiskey. Whatever your preference, there's a Geneva out there for you. Even me? Even you, Tim. This campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. have i mean this is kind of a a, a tim question i don't know if you want to ask it ring it out (laughs) (laughs) something that i had never really thought about i mean makes sense there are so many reviews and write-ups on lth have people ever read like a glowing review and then gone to eat at that place and then kind of like given you shit and been like it wasn't as good as you said or has it ever been pushed back either way yeah i think or a place that you panned that someone ate at and then purposely like was a contrarian and argued against you
2: i think that probably happens in any venue um and i think that to some degree you know you can go a place that you have Been many times, and somebody writes something about it. You're like, All right, I'm going back. I it's a deep monkey mission, I'm going just to prove that my point of view is right. But somehow, that just seems so much easier to do back in the day than now. I mean, I have to say, these days, if I write, if I go somewhere and I love it, I can't wait to write about it. I still feel inspired. I went to Boca over the weekend, yeah, it was I saw phenomenal. Um, but by the same token. Man, if something's bad, I'm just leaving it alone. Yeah, you don't really. I, do that. I, yeah. it, it just like how can you write anything hurtful about anybody right now? Uh, it, it seemed like it was fair game five years ago to go to a place and not like it and be still be analytical yeah. about it, not necessarily be angry or or m- miserable about it. But now it doesn't even seem constructive, and so I just have shied away. So. Um, but I, I do think there's some of that. I think there's rivalries. I think people are proprietary. I mean, it's just, it's it's the nature of life and people don't necessarily leave those attributes at the door when they walk into a given venue.
0: Yeah. As a real writer of food, how do you feel about Yelp opening up the platform for anyone to complain or go out there and voice an opinion where where they may not be qualified to do so.
2: You know, I think everybody's qualified. You just have to be a good enough reader to be able to suss out who's credible and who isn't. Yeah. What bothered me more about Yelp was the way they position things based on your on your status within their community and if you're a paying member or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was my understanding that restaurants could could pay to have their reviews moved to the top of certain lists. Yep. That that's where suddenly you're not sure if you're getting correct information, the feeds being, mani- look, you know, an unadulterated feed, you know, the, the reader can make his own assessment, but with an adulterated feed, with a manipulated feed of information, it becomes much harder to do. And so that's where I really have my problem with those types of venues or the platforms, because who knows if you're really, you know, there could be eight amazingly glowing reviews. There could be 500 crappy ones but you're not seeing those because of the way the information is being parsed out mm-hmm. and so and the conditions the decisions are made upon so for that reason it's tough to read something there and know it's it, you have you have to work harder to determine the credibility of information po- hmm. posted there
0: who now is doing a good job like what what publications are you reading for food news
2: i'll tell you you know this maybe just speaks to my laziness or whatever i'm it's all i don't really read too much about food news i'm really out of the loop as far as who's going where chefs going you know this place or that i mean occasionally i'll see a headline or a click on eater and just to see what's kind of going on but for the most part uh, especially over the last couple of years, it's been all about cooking for me. And for cooking, it's all about YouTube. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, kind of this incredible, you know, forgive me, Channel 11, but it's a window to the world, YouTube is. Because, uh, you know, it is WCFU in a literal sense. Because you can find anything on YouTube and you want to make a specific dish, there are plenty of people who have taken the time generously or even out of ego or some combination of those factors and, and others to share it. And so... Uh, that's really where I've been getting a lot of my information or, you know, the fuel, you know, that kind of just, uh, the lights, my fuse, so to speak, whatever the sparks, the light, my fuse are, are people who are posting their food content at YouTube
1: and any f- uh, recipes you've unearthed on YouTube that uh, you would recommend, like a specific one that you keep going back to time and time again.
2: Oh, you know, there's been a few, I mean, for sure. Uh, uh, I went a little, my family almost left me over my obsession with, with Thai curry, um, especially, you know, like last year I made, uh, red and green curry and uh, a lot of variations, probably 40, 50 times. <laughs> so sick of it. My son was, was very angry at me. Um, <laughs> but it was just this rabbit hole I could not get out of. It was just a, just a vortex of pleasure for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was all because of this, mainly because of this woman, Pai Lin, who has a, a YouTube channel called Hot Thai Kitchen. I mean, I don't think it's, it's any secret. I think last time I looked, she probably had close to 2 million Hot so, Thai re- Kitchen
0: hot is where th- I got my sausage recipe for oh, the really? breakfast sandwich. So she's yeah, she's wow. kind of a,
2: a badass. I also really uh, have been making a lot of things from souped-up recipes. This woman, Mandy, I think she might be in Florida. I don't know. She tends to move around. But she cooks all sorts of different regional Chinese stuff. And she's great, just, you know, nice, concise videos. The written recipes are a little crazy because uh, there's a lot of detail you wouldn't see in a normally conventionally written recipe. But but she's been great. Uh, yeah, you know, like, like, like everybody else, I really... I don't cook too much from him, but I really enjoy Joshua Weissman. He's a lot of fun. Although he tends to... Do, back in the day, he made things I actually wanted to make. These days, not so much all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like everybody else, I think I stopped in a babish for a while. Though he seems to have backed off quite a bit and, you know, kind of sourced it out to other people coming into the Babish culinary universe. <laughs> uh, he's got uh, other people now that do stuff, and they're, and they're cool too, but to me, he was always somebody who was very interesting to watch, so, um, but yeah, I, I guess because of what I grew up with and what I find instinctive to cook, you know, which is... Northern and Western European type food, the Asian stuff has always seemed so mysterious to me and so inaccessible. And then with COVID, I couldn't go get it, and so suddenly I, had, I was like, "I'm going to f- learn how to make this stuff." And so those are the rabbit holes I went down, just because I was curious and I wanted to be able to make things for myself at home, and and uh, and so that was really fun. That was just a lot of fun, especially. You know, back in the vaccination honeymoon days of, of spring 2021, when mm-hmm. suddenly I'm going to grocery stores for the first time in a year, I'm yeah. like, oh my God, I don't have to order $15 oyster sauce on Amazon. I get it for two bucks at the Chinese grocery. <laughs> so that was really, uh, that was amazing. Last year, last spring and summer were just especially fun with the cooking. But that's, so you know, you always, I mean, I don't know, but you always, I generally tend to run to things that are the hardest to figure out. It's like, hey, I, I want to untangle that dish. Why, Why? you know, I want to make that. And so, yeah, I mean, so that's kind of the threads that I pull. And, uh, oh, God, I mean, you, a good friend of, of mine who I know you're an acquaintance, both of you guys know, Mickey Neely, uh, he gave me a book years ago, a Japanese manga about it's all just culinary stuff, oishinbo. And in that, he gave me, there's like seven volumes that have been translated into English, and one of them is just about sake. And in every volume, which are just compendiums of comic strips that have appeared, is one recipe. And he, in there, is this recipe for basically Hacho Miso and sake marinated short ribs. It's a three-ingredient recipe. It's like the greatest thing I've ever made. You make it for people. You're like a rock star. Hmm. And all it is is basically taking some hatcho miso, black hatcho miso, red miso, and sake, marinating some some cross-cut short ribs uh, for a day, and then throwing them on a charcoal grill. And you just it like the synergy there. It, it's it's just kind of incredible. Hmm. And so I'm like is it equal a, parts? Yeah, it's basically uh, you take. Uh, Ends up being like you take equal parts of the two misos, Mm. and then basically another, you know, that's so that equals one part, and you add the, the sake to kind of, you know, balance it out. And I just always kind of just add the sake by eye till it gets to a consistency where I think it'll coat the ribs well. Yeah. And, um, and hmm. then you just kind of wipe them off. we got to try that. Hours. It's so good. Yeah,
1: wow. And it's
2: just kind of spectacular.
1: let put that recipe up instead of a cocktail recipe. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah.
2: You just get to the point where you can't believe that something, how could something so simple be so great? But then miso isn't really that simple, right? But it's simple to buy it. And right. so it's not like, I mean, it's basically, you know, it, in some ways it's, it's uh, akin to you know, other things that come from other culinary cultures where it's just a lot like a mole or something where it's very complex and there's a lot to it, but you get to take the shortcut that makes you look real good. Um, so I love that one. Uh, all pickling, you know, I've gone on so many rabbit holes over the last, you know, decade, but especially over the last couple of years. So,
1: yeah, nice. I just went to a a restaurant in Montreal where there was a Giant jar of cornichon just on the table on every table. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a palate cleanser. I think it was just like to go with all the rich
2: foods, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm.
1: the French influence foods. That's so nice. It was so great. I crushed maybe half this jar. <laughs>
2: and they just leave, they just leave them there, right? Between when yeah, parties come yeah, and go, exactly. right? Yeah,
1: they just yeah. well, like once you order your food, they just put it on the table. Gotcha. And then as you're eating all your courses, it's just there, mm-hmm. and you can kind of just keep.
2: Back in the day. Um, when I was still, I used to be lucky enough to have to go to Paris for work, uh, and um, and I, the first time I went, I was just so amazed because when we you go know, and sit down at these couple places in town, and just a big terrine pate and a knife just show up on your table. Yeah. But what I thought was especially interesting is when you're done, they just take it and put it back on the shelf, and then the next table comes in, <laughs> they just pick up where you left off. But I, you know, I'm sure that doesn't happen anymore, right? It couldn't no. possibly happen anymore. <laughs> But it was so cool. Yeah. Like, wow, this is really, this is really different than at home.
1: You want to be the one that gets the full (laughs) turn. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. You got to trust the people who came before you.
2: But it's just cool to be somewhere and have something. So, you know, be, uh, you know, just, uh, enlightened by a custom that you've just never seen. before. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's no different, I guess, than like the escabeche from like a Mexican place Mm -hmm. that will just have the kind of carrot, onion, peppers sitting in the vinegar on the table. Right. Um, I support, I support those traditions for sure.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, uh, it's a deep well, you know, at the end of the day, all I really want to do is, uh, learn, share, keep my family fed. It's just such a, and then, you know, whatever you do to, it it can be drudgery if you don't make it, do it, approach it in a way that you enjoy it. So you got to mix it up. You got to follow your bliss, so to speak, and just keep cooking. And, and, and for me, the process of, Discovering, shopping, cooking, photographing, documenting. It's kind of all together as one creative process. I, I like it. I feel very completed by it. Um, I don't know if anybody if takes any value in it at all other than me. But I, I think guess plenty of it, people do. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Luckily, I don't have to make my living at it. I get to just have fun, and it doesn't matter if anybody does or not. And that, yeah, there's no that's, pressure there. That's uh, quite liberating. And
1: How's the knife addiction going?
2: Yeah, it's pretty bad. its, <laughs> it's uh, I just ordered a custom-made... It just got here, a custom-made pocket knife from poland and uh <laughs> it's spectacular <So> specific. <laughs> yeah it's incredible this guy herman it makes these i bought it from polish custom knives and this guy herman is just making these it's a herman sting it's fantastic with they should have brought it uh titanium with the uh, timascus scales and the titanium uh works and then this beautiful damascus blade it's it's just huh. so, i don't even want you know I'm gonna use it because I'm not one of those guys that buys stuff and puts it in a drawer. But this—if you're ever gonna buy something and put it in a drawer—this is the knife to do that with. But that's really not a good selling point, right? I, that knife <laughs> was so yeah. nice; I never used it.
0: <laughs> so, um, do, you, do you sharpen your own knives? At I home? do.
2: That's kind of what start, started my whole ra- knife rabbit hole. Was uh, I? It wasn't so much pandemic, really, but I was, there was a couple of places in town that were sharpening knives, and I just didn't like the way they were going. I'd bring my knives there. And I was like, wow man, you ground off a lot of metal. This looks horrible. This is not staying sharp very long. I just didn't like it. So I'm like, how hard could this be? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this is knife sharpening, like a lot of things in life, it's and you're a like minute
1: two fingers later you figure it out. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, it's a minute to learn, it's a lifetime to master. Okay, well that means after a couple hours I can have sharp knives. And um, and so I just started buying a few stones And the place, this incredible... Can I mention a business? Yeah, of Of course. course. Okay, so this incredible place up in Madison, Wisconsin, called Chef Knives to Go. They're technically in Fitchburg, which is right outside of Madison. They sell all sorts of really cool knives and cutlery supplies and for chefs, really. And they sell stones and uh, sharpening stones. So I bought a few stones. I'm like, well, you know, now I'm seeing all these... They also have a message for them that attaches to their store. It's very cool. And I'm like, I'm reading, learning, reading, learning. I'm like, well, you know, maybe one knife. You know, maybe just one. How just many in. are you at now? Oh, it's got to be over a hundred chef knives. It's, it's it's out of control.
1: <laughs> and um, just one. I just my one. I just my yeah. one.
2: And the, the irony is, I have so many knives now, I never need to sharpen them because I don't use them often enough.
1: Yeah, one gets dull, you just toss it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like uh,
2: Andre Agassi's Adidas, right? Just yeah. wear them one from away. Yeah. But I I uh, have. But it's what the cool thing is I've learned and I've done a lot of sharpening for friends. So and then I get to, now I get to lecture them about how crappy their knives are but um, but seriously I've sharpened a couple hundred knives maybe 300 knives over the last couple of years and it's all been most all of them have been just for friends or family I'm like hey you know, I did that cheesy thing at Christmas where I gave everybody a gift certificate, I'm like just unlimited sharpening. You know, and then t- people took me up on it. My stepmom brings me, you know, 14 knives. They've all been in a drawer in a drawer for a decade, and I'm like it was cool to sharpen them. She had some good stuff.
1: I'll take you up on that offer. Yeah, well,
2: for either you, anybody, anybody listening out Christmas there in Podland, just bring me your knives. <laughs> I need Careful the practice.
1: Wish for. We're about to get 100,000 more. Yeah, We've got right. 15 <laughs> listeners. So, um, <laughs> and but if each you want them done, I would just say
2: if you want them done well, maybe take them somewhere else. But no, no, I've actually gotten pretty good. <laughs> So, um, but it's just, it's such a satisfying activity, but, but that really, so that led me to really, I'm like, you know, first I didn't understand it. Like, how could people get obsessed with this? Why do people care so much about Japanese knives? What makes them superior to the French or the German or other stuff? You you do, you start getting into wow. it and you realize, okay, yeah, the Japanese, it's just, it's just a different level.
1: So the Japanese knives are the best? Uh, I would not say they're the best.
2: I would say they're the most, it's they're the most um intense okay it is the, like many things japanese it is a very distilled culture mm-hmm. you know it's so concentrated for centuries and centuries and i just think the the amount of detail there and the amount of different independent makers people who are actually is incredible especially compared to other places
1: you just don't see it is there a crown jewel in the collection
2: and, oh, I've got no, look. I, nothing. I don't have anything. Ironically, probably my most valuable knife is one that was made by a, a domestic guy, by by Bob Kramer, um, and and uh, he used to own this place called Bladesmiths, and now it's just I think it's just Kramer Knives. He's got a slew of people working under him. But back in the day, uh, I read an article in Savour. This was probably 1999. Uh, I was on a, a flight, I'm reading Zivor, I'm like, oh, wow, these knives are pretty cool. And so I mentioned it to my wife, and um, a year and a half later, uh, I bestowed upon me this beautiful knife, this wow. this high carbon steel, beautiful handmade knife with mosaic pins in the in the in the handle, and just this gorgeous knife. Did and it just, take
1: a year and a half to fabricate?
2: Yeah, Julie said that's the waiting oh, wow. list. It took. Now, I mean, you can't. Oh and my he, God. He, This is still back when he was making them himself, and so that's probably like the knife that if most people as many beautiful Japanese knives as I ha- as I have, hmm. this is probably the knife that people would come and say like, "Wow, you have an original Bob Kramer." I'm like, "Yeah, I do," but uh, hmm. you know. Something I know
1: nothing about.
2: It's so cool. It's a very beautiful blade, and and, um, I'm happy to have it. But, yeah, I've got all sorts of fun little things. And pocket knives. Of course, it then turned into pocket knives. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, just knives are about sharing. And I'm really about sharing. And so if you're out somewhere, what do you need to share things with people? You need a knife more than anything else. You can cut food in half. You can prepare food with it. There's just a lot of things you can do with a knife. And so to me, it's like the most essential tool to have on you. And um, and so with that philosophy kind of driving me, I, I admit it's gotten a little out of control, but I guess it's just kind of the way I am with my, when I get into a hobby, I kind of go all yeah. in. You know? I,
1: yeah, I think we can identify.
2: So mm-hmm. it certainly happened with bourbon. And yeah. uh, so and a lot of other little things that I've been into over the years. So, But the knife thing is, is just beautiful, and I love being able to like, not only just share with using knives, but to give them to the people, to be like, you know, people at work, I'll be like, I know exactly the knife this guy needs.
1: You're like the Ollivander of knives. <laughs>
2: yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but it's really cool to just lay a knife on somebody and be like, Yeah, I think this is going to be perfect for you. I know the kind of projects you do. I know your hobbies. I know where you live. Hmm. I know what you I do know, on I the week. I know where you yeah, live. That yeah. great. I know, I know you know, people. how many kids you do or don't have. I know yeah. what you do on the weekends. <laughs> this is your knife. Yeah. You know, you buy somebody something that's completely waterproof. Or you buy something for somebody you know that spends a lot of time in the outdoors, or somebody that hunts. Hmm. I mean, I mean it's they're all different type of things and i know somebody who just really loves to cook yeah. so those are those are things i love to share if i you know i just go, don't go out of my way to do it but every once in a while it becomes very clear to me that oh this person would love this and then you just can't wait to lay it on them
1: nice that's cool so it's better than laying it in them <laughs> yeah
2: for sure <laughs> for sure <laughs>
0: This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options, or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com
1: All right. well, Uh, How about the gratuity round, Let's bring it
0: on. These are going to be questions. Mm -hmm. Shoot from the hip. Simple. They could be as quick as one word or a sentence or even a story. We'll kick it off with what would be your death row meal? A sandwich of any kind.
2: Isn't that silly? But yeah, it's a sandwich. Sandwich <laughs> what's is What's the my number be- one sandwich?
0: Yeah. What's your top sandwich now?
2: Oh god! I mean, I would love like, a good Italian sub. Is Is there anything better? Like I don't from know.
1: Bari, from J. P. Garage? I think it,
2: no. I think you got to just kind of craft it yourself. I mean, oh. yes, those things would be good, okay. but yeah, I think you just go. You get the right meats, the right cheese. Some what's arug- your build? What
1: lay it on I, me? Okay,
2: like a little, you know, mortadella, yeah. prosciutto, uh, um jardiner, yeah, um, arugula. Yeah, is great uh, uh, provolone very thinly sliced a nice piquant, aged provolone doesn't overwhelm uh, and a really good crusty bread i mean so
1: no like no oil vinegar you're well, I think just in the using the jar
2: i think the jardinier is enough there yeah, mm. i might take a little a few spoon, it's very chicago of, very uh, take a few spoonfuls of the jardiner oil and i augment. think you
1: gotta ha- yeah i think you gotta augment
2: yeah okay i, I don't disagree maybe a sprinkle of oregano
1: all right yeah. but yeah i like that sometimes they can be heavy-handed with the oregano it really <laughs> depends on the place
2: you know a good friend of mine uh who i know you know very well a good friend of you, rob lapata <laughs> yeah.
1: he's all about balance man it's all <laughs> about the balance so yeah so good
2: but yeah italian sub italian
0: is a good sandwich. one well this might be the same answer but what's your favorite thing to cook are you, are you still on curry?
2: No, I'm really not on curry. I
0: I
1: You're, you've OD'd.
2: <laughs> I curry's gone, fried rice is gone. Uh at this point, you know, this time of year, it's all it's a uh, love to to grill um and pickling. Been doing a lot of pickling. Uh quick pickles, uh Korean style cucumber salads, uh but uh and and a lot of grilled meats and and uh, yeah, and I've uh, you know, been doing quite a bit of stir fry mushrooms. Love cooking mushrooms. they they just can do anything. They're so yeah. versatile. They're gonna save the planet too. So, I'm all about mushrooms. But yeah, I guess it's, it's it's the the, it's the regular rotation is just kind of too big to, to narrow it down.
1: I have a kind of a an improvised insert question here. You. We Obviously, we all lived through uh, significant times in quarantine. Was there a restaurant or a cocktail or something that you were like eager to get as soon as the quarantine was over, as soon as you were, you know, spring of 2021, like the first thing on your list?
2: Well, I think... Yeah, I think, you know, there's a few different answers to that question. One of them is uh, Prairie Grass Cafe up in Northbrook because those are my people. Those are Sarah and George and Rohit are like my friends, and I've been there five, 600 times over the years. I've hosted parties there. I've had work events there. Where we had the owners joke that every time we bring somebody there, from, you know if we bring a work party in, it probably means somebody's getting fired. It's not true, though, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it teases us about that. Um, of course, going to, to Arroyo was just something I just cannot wait to do um and then i i joke with people that the one place i really it's only slightly food related but i joke with people that the one place i was dying to get back to is crate and barrel because the store was (laughs) basically filled with so much unnecessary shit i knew if i'd gone there that the pandemic would really be over because you never need to go there so that would be (laughs) such a nice optional luxury so that (laughs) yeah
0: all right cool uh, what's your favorite restaurant you've been to recently?
2: Well, Boca was amazing. Oh, and I've been a long time since I've been there, and I haven't really been going out very much, so I'd have to say Boca. I love it because it's near my office, and I go there quite a bit. Sestaria, a Greek place on Tui, just east of uh, of Cicero, uh, absolutely incredible place. Uh, just really great. Some place I'll always go out on my way to, to go. And I don't need to, but I will. It's It's just that good.
0: I'll have to check that one out. Yeah,
2: that's really good. It's been there for years, but it wasn't until about ten years ago that a couple of brothers who toiled at Greek Islands split off, bought it from I think it used to be Russian owned. And so one of them runs one of them since retired, but ran the front of the house, one of them runs the kitchen. I think their nephews are running it now. But man, it is some solid Greek food. I frankly I think it, it has as much to do with the demise of Greek town as anything. Mm, is that yeah. this food is such a beacon that people just travel there. They don't need to go to Greek town for the best Greek food anymore.
1: It would have made more sense if they were sisters. <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> is true. All right. Favorite old school restaurant?
2: Well, I love Bruna, you know, yeah, little and, Italy. Uh, down Oakley, uh, and um, that one really comes to mind. Uh, is
0: that the best one in that little section of restaurants? I, I
2: think so. I mean, I haven't been to every place, but yeah, that, to me, it's the best. And it's also like the, I think kind of the last of that ilk yeah. anywhere in, in the area. Yeah. There used to be a few, and they really are gone now. Um, there are a few, like I, you know, I live mostly, you know, up north, and there's Charlie Beinlich, even though I don't love the food, I love the place. Julie's and, favorite burger. Yeah, and uh, Barnaby's in Northbrook is also another really old school place that, I haven't changed anything there since it opened in 1969. The original Lou Melnatis in Lincolnwood is incredible.
1: I didn't know that was the original. Yeah, that's huh. yeah.
2: And I think that one opened oh, in 70, blown. 71, the one on Lincoln and uh so there's a, there's a few places. There's a you know a, a, I don't like the food, but again, the vibe is great. Nightingale up in Highwood is a is a really cool place. Uh so Cafe okay. like Lago, yeah.
1: Good answers. Mm.
0: What's an undiscovered gem restaurant? Something that hasn't gotten the recognition that it deserves yet. Maybe it's something new, or maybe it's something that's just kind of flown under the radar.
2: Oh wow, that's that's a really tough one for me to answer. I just have not been going out often enough to really to really even say. I mean, you know, I think not a lot of people know about the good Thai places, but I wouldn't say they're undiscovered gems. Um, you know, one place that, that I went and I went with Danny. Uh, right before, the, I think it was the last meal before the pandemic, was this uh, JMC Sichuan kitchen uh, in Chinatown. Mm. It's very small. It's kind of amazing. I don't think pe- many people know about it, uh, but it's really great.
1: Love Sichuan food. Yeah,
2: me too. It's great, and they do a great job there.
1: Don't get to eat it enough.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's so good. And look, I spent a lot of time in the pandemic trying to learn how to make it, and I do a really good job for who I am. What are Uh,
1: the ones, what are the dishes you try to recreate?
2: Uh, I really have tried to make mapo tofu, which I've gotten pretty decent at Mm. and, um, a few vegetable dishes. Um, but that's the one that's to me, that's like the the crown jewel of that cuisine. If you can nail it. And, uh, so, but I've done a, a bunch of different ones and, um, it's never great. It's always good, good. It's like, but when you go there, you're just like, Okay, yeah, I'm like I'm like playing triple A ball here. I mean, be done, <laughs> single A ball compared to what these guys do. Yeah, you, you can buy all the ingredients. You can watch somebody make it. You just, if it's not part of your culture, you got to really learn it from somebody, and, and that's hard to do. But I, but yeah, JMC uh, Sichuan Kitchen is is really incredible.
0: Cool. So. What's your favorite fast food restaurant?
2: Do you want a chain, or do you want just like fast food? Fast food. I think either yeah, we've yeah, gotten.
0: Yeah. Uh, We've gotten kind of everything. All
2: right, I'll give you. I'll give you three answers.
0: Great, because I'm
2: not a concise person. All right, because of my years that I spent in New Orleans, Popeyes. Yeah, I do like Popeyes, or as we call it, Popeyes. Um, (laughs) Love, love, Red Hot Ranch.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, you know, certainly fast. Nice write up in the New York Times. Okay. Did they? Okay. Had it on Saturday.
2: Love red Hot Ranch, another place that I really missed that I was going back to the minute the pandemic a you know ended enough to allow me to. and then I guess if I had to just pick a really conventional chain, you know i it's a guilty pleasure, probably has something to do with my dad because he took me there when I was young is White Castle, yeah. He had stories from when he grew up, and he took me, and it was like a mystical place. And so even though it isn't a mystical place by any means anymore, I, it just, it's been in part of me for so long. That What's I, the
0: order there? Just the sliders?
2: Yeah, just a cheeseburger or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and with everything, which is ketchup, mustard, pickle, onion. Um, but my dad told me this goofy story about when he was growing up, and he had a contest. The, the hamburgers were a nickel. And I had a contest with my friend, and I ate 18 of them, and I lost. He had 21 of them. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? He used to go there, the one on you know, on Elston. It's
1: like and a whole Crave case I, worth. And Oh, yeah, yeah. the Elston one.
2: And, uh, cause it was like, we go to Blackhawks or whatever, and it was on the drive down. And I just remember going there and back then you just, they wouldn't even put them in the boxes. If you ate them there, they just put them on a paper plate for you. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of ingrained into who I am as a person, even though I would never try to argue to anybody, what do you mean you don't like it? I'd be like, yeah, I get it. You know, I get it. Yeah.
0: Uh, do you have a favorite dining experience where maybe the hospitality was over the top, even if you were recognized, is there something that stands out in your mind?
2: That that meal that I had for my fortieth birthday at Naha really stands out. is absolutely incredible. Uh, just because the food was so memorable, and it was a place that wasn't on my radar at all. And then suddenly you're having this world class cuisine, uh, the best meal I had in Spain, uh, which was a just an incredible trip. Was at Arzac mm. amazing. Um, you know, but who who wouldn't say that if they had, if they had been there? I mean, that's an easy one. Um, I the I went to Alinea a lot, and can I, especially at the beginning, because after I wrote that thing for e anybody who knew me, if they wanted to go, they're like, I want to go with you, and yeah. I probably went 25 times. And that, <laughs> I have been there 25 times, um, all very front-loaded, but some of those experiences there were just incredible because you just can't believe what you're eating and, and the whole experience, so that, that was also uh, really just amazing. And, yeah, that... that uh, sometimes you just you know when i was so young in this world and you go somewhere and somebody recognizes you it it propels you a little bit so that that meal whenever it was 2004 or five whatever it wasn't at trio the one of the last ones grant did there when the uh server said are you ronnie suburban scott norman <laughs> is the guy you know he's like remember me like my favorite server of all time for that moment even though i'm sure he's just doing his job but yeah you're, wait, you're Ronnie Suburban? My wife was like, oh my God, I'm married to a celebrity. It was like, you know. <laughs> so, but no, the, the food always wins out. And, uh, you know, I've had so many great meals uh, over the years. It's just been, you know, I've been fortunate. I've been tapped this to meet some good people. I've been in the right place at the right time. Uh, commander, brunch of Commander's Palace, incredible. I'm 18 years old. My roommate is from Houston. His parents take us there. Like, you know, that's just luck. I mean, you just stumble into something, and suddenly you're lucky, and you're having something really cool. Turtle soup. Yeah. I mean, amazing stuff. And as long as we're on the New Orleans thing, I have to say Mosca's. Mosca's, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's two hours outside of town. You get there, it's a three-hour wait. It's a little white building with a Budweiser sign in front of Hmm. it. Absolutely incredible food there. Oysters Mosca, uh, chicken a la grande. I mean, just these dishes that have stayed with me for, well a long time how <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was there in 80 in 81 so 40 years I still think about these dishes and during the pandemic somebody wrote at the Washington Post post an article for the chicken a grande a grande at moscas I made it it brought me back I mean it was so great to make that dish hmm. place is incredible absolutely yeah. incredible what's and, your
0: yeah. what's your go-to cocktail order
2: well it's an old-fashioned I mean uh, you know I mean I like Bourbon. (laughs) And I often joke that for me, you know, a good old-fashioned is just put the sugar next to the glass. Don't even put (laughs) it in. Um, (laughs) So I do really, if I had to pick any drink, it would be an old-fashioned. It's, you know, it's a good mark of a bartender uh, to really see what he's doing or she's doing um, or they're doing. Um,
0: How do you feel about a brandy old-fashioned?
2: I'm not too sweet for me. We, yeah. I just am not into sweet. I, I respect it. And having just come back from Wisconsin, I get the culture there. But the sweet is not my thing. It's funny. It used to be, but the more you drink, the less you care about sweet. Agreed. I love, love, love a perfect, perfectly balanced daiquiri. That's something that I will go high and low. To ch- if I know a bartender, I will say, give me your best daiquiri i love seeing what they come back with it, it they can express themselves they can mix the rums They can go with one rum uh it's really cool so daiquiri is definitely something that i will order especially if i'm looking for something a little more on the refreshing side yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's that's wow i've had some amazing ones and uh yeah so that's that's probably probably says as much about it uh, me as anything is that it's, either, it's gonna be dark and just brooding, or it's gonna be light and <laughs> you know perky.
0: Good range, <laughs> yeah. Everything balanced. So, all right, last question. Okay. What is something that restaurants do that annoys you?
2: I know that this is. I think one thing that restaurants do that really annoys me, even though I understand why they do it, is your whole party must be here to be seated you know come on we're coming they're just mm-hmm. <laughs> really just we're gonna sit down we're gonna order cocktails we're gonna order some appetizers we're not gonna sit here and tie up your table we're gonna tip well we love this industry we're gonna take care of people i'm not everybody walks in does so i get that but it's like just let us we have a reservation yeah just, uh, yeah the whole really the whole that's party a good one i'm here.
0: surprised that's the first time we yeah, have heard that no one, one said that
1: yeah
2: so, so it's just the first thing that came to mind we're Associating here, so uh, they're, they're, but really, I, I am a huge fan of the industry. Very little that happens in restaurants bothers me. Uh, mostly, it's what other customers do who are not respectful or don't realize what a grind it is, how hard it is, or these idiots that think somehow somebody's getting filthy rich running a restaurant. Oh, how dare they charge me this or that? Uh, it's amazing to me how people do not understand the terrain. Uh, how demanding they are they let their kids run around I mean okay well, I did that too but those days are over now so I can be a dick about it um, <laughs> but uh, you know I just think the, the mostly what bothers me in restaurants is like I said the other what other people do but what, what restaurants themselves do that's it's a pretty short list and that yeah. everybody must be here is probably at the top of it
0: yeah well I'm sure the industry loves you back <laughs> I, I hope so I man. do I mean you know absolutely it's,
2: so, it's just like nothing but admiration for people who work that hard and I could never work that hard and I never wanna work that hard. Um, and uh, so I got a lot of respect for people and that and it takes me back to Tony Bourdain. and I you know, he made he he just affirmed everything I suspected about how hard that life was. And that was liberating because I was able to walk away from it and enjoy it as a customer and it's been since then twenty really fun years of just enjoying it without thinking, Should I? Should I you know, whatever. So, yeah, it's been pretty cool. Wow. And, uh, yeah
1: yeah thank you so much for joining us on the podcast
2: my pleasure thank you guys again for for letting me be a part of it i i really appreciate it yeah been great thank We're you happy Ryan. to
1: have you here ronnie
2: yeah we'll you know
1: be well and uh i'm sure i'll pass across again soon absolutely and that concludes our episode with ronnie kaplan of lth forum fame thanks for listening and be sure to check out the
0: joiners pod Instagram account for extra material, including throwback photos from
1: guests, as well as our cocktail hour from Danny Shapiro. Yeah, basically we try to take the information that we glean from the interview and create a cocktail around that. So there's a pretty big range of flavors and things that uh, you'll see crop up on the cocktail hour feature. And they're approachable. Even even I could make them, right, Danny? Usually pretty straightforward. Uh, might throw some curveballs in the future based on new data. No uh, freeze-dried mulberries. No freeze-dried mulberries. Uh, yeah. And thanks again for listening. We will catch you next week.